Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Maddie. Michael. Okay, today we're talking about drugs of the anus. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry? Drugs of the anus. Uh, well, sure? specifically drugs of the penis. Pe- penis? The autonomic nervous system, ANS, and parasympathetic nervous oh, system, penis. penis. Yeah, penis. Oh, my, my bad. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. Today, we're talking about drugs of the cholinergic system. So, these are drugs of the parasympathetic nervous system. Parasympathetic. That's what I was saying. Which is before. parallel to the sympathetic. Is that what that means? I think so. Oh. And what, when it says sympathetic, so. what are we referring to? Sympathy. How is yeah, it? Your lack sympathy? of. True. So. We've already spoken about in previous episodes drugs of the sympathetic. sympathetic. So we've done adrenergic receptors and adrenergic drugs. So what's left? We have done cholinergic receptors and so we're left with cholinergic drugs. All right. So when we talk about cholinergic drugs, we're referring to acetylcholine, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So when we look at acetylcholine, we know that it is a neurotransmitter. Right. It's a neurotransmitter that works within the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. And it is one of the primary neurotransmitters for the autonomic nervous system, actually both for the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. So just as a quick recap... And also skeletal muscles. Yes. So acetylcholine tells skeletal muscles to contract, right? More or less. All right. Well, with the help of 
calcium, calcium. and ATP and yep. so forth and sodium influx or action potential. All right, oh, yep. Just showing off a little bit. So when we look at acetylcholine in the autonomic nervous system, the autonomic nervous system is basically talking about the automatic nervous system that's... Without your control of. Yeah, sympathetic, which is... Or conscious control of. Sympathetic being... Uh, fight and flight. And parasympathetic being... Rest and digest. All right, so both of them are two neuron chains coming out of the spinal cord. So that means... Or brainstem. Or brainstem. So it's going from the uh, brainstem or spinal cord, then one neuron shoots out, it then throws a neurotransmitter to the second neuron, which then speaks to the effector target organ or gland. Okay. And what are these uh, effector or target glands in the parasympathetic nervous system if we're going to digest and... Uh, rest yes okay good work well the effector organs can include do you want to do this top to toe let's just stick stick with the digestion part so what are the things that you want to be activated what are the effector organs okay so you didn't want me to go through the two neuron chain not yet okay so when we hear rest and digest, because I think it's easy for everyone when they hear fight and flight mm. to think of everything that's happening, like heart rate goes up, breathing goes up, people get big, you've got more blood to muscles, um, you know, all that stuff. But yeah. when you're resting and digesting, so this is where you've just eaten a big meal and you're sitting down resting. Okay. But let's stick with the digestion part to right. begin with. What are all the parts in your digestive tract that you want to make active. Okay, well, you I mean, want... you can do that from top to toe if you want. Okay, so... Or mouth to anus. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that. So, we want secretions to occur. Right. So, these are going to be digestive secretions. These are going to be enzymes. These are going to be various chemicals. These are going to be mucus secretions. Anything that can aid the digestive process. Right? Okay. So, that can include what's been released at the stomach or at the small intestines and even at the large intestines. There's not as many digestive right enzymes. Well, at the mouth, uh, true. At the mouth is probably where we should start because you take a burger in and we're going to release saliva. Okay. So, know, salivation is one. Salivation. Yeah. Stomach. Enzymes. Uh, stomach, well, has its own type of salivation, but it's mucus that's been released. Okay. Anything else? And a whole bunch of digestive enzymes, so, mainly those for protein. So acid and and pepsinogen. Yep. Okay. Small intestine. Small intestines has um, well, basically releases all three digestive enzymes that break down proteins, fats, and carbs. Okay. Via its conversation with the pancreas, and also releases a bunch of hormones that can trigger. Everywhere else in the digestive system to start kicking up. Okay. Um, and what about just the movement through? How do you move everything through? Well, it's a big, long, hollow pipe from mouth to anus. Mm-hmm. And so, now we go back to mouth to anus. Sorry. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you said mouth to anus. I'm saying mouth from mouth to anus. Damn, I said it too. Sorry. <laughs> um, surrounded by a hollow muscular tube smooth muscle and so in order for things to move through the process of contraction and relaxation in a patterned wave like fashion like a walking caterpillar yeah or when you push a tennis ball through a sock as you do it's (laughs) termed peristalsis okay and so you basically need to contract smooth muscles to do this yes so you could be correct by saying in parasympathetic rest and digest you are contracting smooth muscles to move the food along and increasing the release of digestive secretions. Okay, but there are some muscles that you do need to relax, not contract. Yeah, I suppose the gatekeepers, uh, which are the sphincters, uh, <laughs> they, they are basically the gatekeepers of 
movement throughout your GIT, well, and other structures, and they separate one structure from another. So, so there's a few. There's uh, upper and lower esophageal. Yep. There's the ileocecal, and there's probably then the rectal or anal. There's a couple there. Um, which, in the case of this, is probably more so um, the internal. Yes, because external the external conscious. you've got conscious control over. So these relax. Well, at least I like to think I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so these relax. Yes. So this is all that's happening in the digestive. So when you think parasympathetic, everything we just spoke about then is what's occurring. Yeah. Okay. The other, and so we've got digestion and evacuation with the GIT. But we've also got, and secretion. And then the other kind of um, thing that's happening down that <laughs> down that end of town is the urinary. Yeah. Okay. So your bladder is just a storage um, device for urine yeah and when you are resting in digestion this is probably um the, the goal here is probably to allow you to evacuate it not all the time empty but, the storage unit, yeah, <laughs> oh. the storage unit. so you want to contract your bladder and you want to release the sphincters right does that make sense yeah kidneys absolutely. not so much i mean you could probably argue parasympathetic is probably going to give greater kidney f- blood flow and so forth and uh, sympathetic but it's kind of done on its own more so but the parasympathetic control of the urinary system is more contracting the bladder and releasing the sphincters okay for the urination side of things perfect is that fair i think that's great okay so that's two done yeah any other systems in the parasympathetic in rest and digestion you want to talk about yeah so i think just very briefly when we talk about parasympathetic the it's about maintaining homeostasis in that time of resting and digesting. So other things that do happen, which may not contribute significantly to the digestion role, but do occur under parasympath- parasympathetic control, includes uh, constriction of your pupils. Okay. It includes lacrimation. So crying. Yep. Uh, it includes a slowing down of your heart rate. Okay, because you probably just don't need as such a forceful heartbeat and a quick heartbeat while you're sitting eating it includes a cons- a, a, a slight constriction of the musculature in your airways so the bronchioles yeah less less air less oxygen and anything else you can think of i think that covers the well, prominent effects right i'm not sure if it's more of a um a lack of sympathetic or a parasympathetic effect but you probably have changes in muscle tone within the blood vessels so you'd have more blood going to your gut which you'd want yeah and probably more going to your skin so you can probably thermoregulate so you may look flushed if you activate the parasympathetic nervous system too much yeah i'm not sure i can't really comment on that yes the answer is yes with some of these drugs that we're talking going to talk about it can lead to flushing okay yeah because of that effect of dilating so i must be just constantly in a rest and digest state yeah (laughs) at least your hair is all right matt's a ranger so that is talking about the parasympathetic nervous system and kind of everything it does yes now the next thing you should be aware about the parasympathetic nervous system is that we also term it the craniosacral system because you can divide where those neurons that come out of the brain or spinal cord come out for the parasympathetic nervous system, they either come out at the level of the brain stem mm-hmm. or at the level of the sacrum. Now, that's why it's called craniosacral. Now, if you look at the nerves that come out the level of the brain stem, they're going to be cranial nerves. By definition, they have to. And you've got 12 of them. Yes. 12 so pairs. There's only four that come so out. So not all of them? No. No, not all So just of them. a handful yes. of your 12 
If uh, four is parasympathetic. A handful, yes. Yeah. They, those are okay. I'm going to test you. Cranial nerve three. What is it? Ocular motor. All right. Cranial nerve seven. Then. Facial. All right. Uh, nine. Glossopharyngeal. All right. And cranial nerve ten. The wanderer. Okay, the vagus. <laughs> yeah. So these are the four cranial nerves that are involved in the parasympathetic nervous system. So let's just quickly have a look. O- number three, which is ocular motor, mm-hmm. what's its function? Specifically parasympathetic? Yeah, let's just talk about that. Uh, pupil lens. Okay. So constriction of the pupils, mm. that's probably the primary effect, yeah. right? Uh, what about facial? Salivation, lacrimation. Yep. And what about glossopharyngeal? Ooh. Salivation as well. Yeah, yeah, parotid, parotid, yeah. parotid. And vagus? Uh, this is everything else, really. Yeah, everything it's, parasympathetic. Up to the... Well, at least for the GIT. So up to pooping and peeing. It stops at the point of the... Let's just say the splenic flexure of your transverse colon. Oh, that helps everyone. So, so all your gut... The last third of your large bowel. All your gut, except the last third of your... <laughs> <laughs> And that's because that's the last part, including your urinary system, mm. which is sci- oh, it's not sciatic, um, sacral. Yeah. And that's three, four, five. No, two, three, four. Keeps poo off the floor. Or pee. And pee. So, so you can so basically say that... It's vagus- two, three, four keeps poo off the floor. <laughs> so you could say that vagus is the main parasympathetic nerve for everything parasympathetic. Outside your head. Outside your head, uh, excluding pooping and peeing. I mean, the last act, you mean? Yeah. Yes. All right. The yep. last act. Shakespeare's final act. So <laughs> that's, that's, the, um, that's the cranio side. And the sacral side, like you just said, everything after the splenic flexure has to do with the last aspects of pooping and, and peeing. All right. All right. Now let's talk about the receptors, which we have done. Mm-hmm. But it's good to just do a super quick recap of the receptors of the... Uh, parasympathetic nervous system. But to talk about that, we need to talk about that two-neuron chain of the parasympathetic nervous system. Brilliant. So the first neuron that's coming out of the cranio area or the sacral area needs to speak to a second neuron mm-hmm. and it does it by releasing a neurotransmitter. Yep. Now, the neurotransmitter that's released will always be acetylcholine and it yep. will bind to a receptor that's specific for acetylcholine and that's always going to be nicotinic. Okay, and, and we just talk in parasympathetic at the moment. Just talking okay. parasympathetic. So this would be a nicotinic N, which is nicotinic nerve. Okay, is that okay. what it means? It's just the name that they give the receptor. Okay. okay. Now, once that acetylcholine has been thrown from the first neuron to the second neuron, yep. or what you could say is from the pre-ganglionic neuron to the post-ganglionic neuron, yeah. the post-ganglionic neuron or the second neuron will continue its signal and then will be to innovating... Sorry? To the effector. Yes, it'll innovate an effector. And that effector is going to be all those organs are just yep. all organ systems we've spoken about for the parasympathetic nervous And where system. they communicate is usually in a collection, which is the ganglion. Yes. And because it's parasympathetic, we've probably already done this in the autonomic or the parasympathetic section of the autonomic, but just so we, whilst it's here, um, this ganglion is very close to the effector. Yes. Unlike the sympathetic, which is at the chain. Yes, which, which is, is near the spinal cord. Paravertebral. Paravertebral. Um, now, so if this was, let's say, um, going to go to the lacrimal gland, um, the actual ganglion is very close to the gland. Gotcha. Okay. 
Sorry. That's okay. So if the so when the second neuron needs to talk to this gland, whether it's the lacrimal gland or the stomach or whatever it may be, it needs to release another neurotransmitter. And again, it's acetylcholine. Okay. And acetylcholine this time doesn't bind to nicotinic receptors. It binds to muscarinic receptors. Right. Now, predominantly, yep. you can make an argument that there are both nicotinic and muscarinic receptors on some of these effectors. But today we're going to simplify it and we're going to focus on muscarinic because that's predominantly the receptor that's present. Okay. Sounds All right. Good. Sounds good. So what we're talking about today with cholinergic drugs is mainly certain drugs that mimic acetylcholine or change the levels of acetylcholine at the muscarinic receptors. You okay with that? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. All right. So what are the muscarinic receptors, Matt? How many are there? There's five. Unlike... Unlike adrenergic, which is typically four, which is the alpha one, alpha two, beta one, beta two. I'll just probably argue with beta three as well, right? So yeah. there's probably five there as well. But no drugs affect it. So who mm. gives um, flying? Muscarinic. Uh, so M1, M2, M3, M4, and M5. All right. So they're all motorways. Yeah, in Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> okay. M1. Um, well, let's just say... We can, just for today, we'll exclude L- M4 and M5. For what reason? Uh, I think they're similar to um, the, the adrenergic beta-3. I think they're just less commonly used, so it's best just to take them out for today. Okay, so you Are you happy with that? Yeah. Uh, so basically, just like, like the M4 brain mostly, and same with the M5 mostly in the brain. There's probably arg- arguably other places, but... They're the main types. So let's just exclude them for today's discussion and we'll focus on M- M1, M2, and M3. Okay. Are you happy with that? Yes. Yeah, just good. to make it easy for listeners, All right. particularly students who are preparing for things or exams. Um, we'll just keep it to M1, M2, M3. Now, when we spoke about sympathetic receptors, we help students remember them by saying that some, if you throw adrenaline at them, some are <laughs> excitable and some... Some excite and some inhibit. Yeah. Is it the same with cholinergic? More or less. So the receptor, because it's water water soluble, I assume, it has a receptor on the outside of the cell. Um, I think they're all G protein receptors. Um, some will, will respond with more calcium, essentially going into a cell. So if it's a muscle, we know if you have more calcium going into a muscle cell, you get contraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is one type which is actually inhibited in calcium release. So that would actually inhibit the response. So when we think of what you just asked, M1 and M3 excite, okay? So you're going to have more calcium in the cell, so you're going to have a excitatory response. And M2, you're going to see an inhibitory response. And I think that's a good point to make because what you want to think about is when you throw a positive ion... Because calcium is Ca2+, right? It's an ion. It's positively charged. When you throw a positively charged ion into a cell, you're changing the resting membrane potential yep. into an excitatory phase. Yep. And this is what's basically happening. So if you do anything to increase the movement of positive ions into a cell, it's going to be excitatory. right? Okay. That's a blanket statement that we can make. There's going to be exceptions to this rule, but this is important in this case. When you throw calcium in, it's excitatory. If you inhibit calcium, it's going to be inhibitory. And this is what we're talking about with these three receptors. 
M1 excitatory throws calcium in. M2 inhibitory blocks calcium from going in. M3 excitatory throws calcium in. Okay, so now let's put all those organs and body parts that we spoke about at the start from what's happening when you're rested in digestion. Mm-hmm. And so now we can line up each M1, M2, M3 and where they're actually happening. Oh. So M1, it's happening mostly at parietal cells, which you know are at the stomach. Yes. Um, so if you excite them, what's going to come out? Acid, hydrochloric okay. acid. And do you want that when you're resting in digestion? Yes, you do want that because it's going to help denature proteins. Great. So that makes sense. The other one that could be at M1 is the CNS. So sometimes they might What's use that? Um, the central nervous system oh, okay. or the, the brain. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Probably throughout, but let's just keep it for the brain today. All right. Neurons in the brain. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. Neurons in the brain do need acetylcholine because it plays an important role with solidifying synaptic conversations creating memories okay all that type of stuff. all right m2 yeah. so what did you remember from m2 is it excitatory or inhibitory it's inhibitory okay so now the first thing you got to think of is what in the parasympathetic would you like to inhibit ah that's a good way of okay so it. heart yeah you would inhibit the heart because you want it to slow down and contract less forcefully yeah okay anything else you want to inhibit in the rest and digest I think the only thing we spoke about was that when we looked at the digestive system, we want to activate everything, activate the muscles, activate the secretions, but you said we need to inhibit the gatekeepers being Mm -hmm. the sphincters to allow the movement of things from one structure to the next. So you'd want to relax sphincters. Does that mean M2 receptors predominantly are on the heart and the sphincters are the GIT? Probably also the urinary. Okay, cool. All right. Okay. Uh, probably there is amongst other ones as well, but that's the main ones, I think. Yep. M3. So this is excitatory. Yep. And this acts on many smooth muscles. So we have smooth muscles in your bronchioles. Anyway. So if you contract those, what happens to the open, well, the, the diameter of your bronchioles? They become less patent, Matthew. They become more constricted. So a smaller diameter. Yes. That means less air comes through. That means you have bronchoconstriction. Mm-hmm. Okay. That that makes sense? Makes sense. Okay. In your pupils, so remember back to the parasympathetic, sorry, the sympathetic, we said that in your iris, the body of your iris, you kind of have two groups of muscles. You have one that are the kind of radiating fibers that um, pull on each dimension, each part of the um, pupil. And if you pull on every little part of the pupil and stretch it out, the pupil will dilate, okay? But in the parasympathetic part, you've also got a constrictor, a a sphincter constrictor. And so this is the one that's getting activated. So you're getting pupil constriction here. Okay. Um, So bronchoconstriction, pupil constriction. Yep. Um, Basically, all the smooth muscle in your GIT tract. So that's going to be for uh, peristalsis. Also, your detrusor muscle, which is located where? At the bladder. Okay. Squeezes the pee out of the bladder. Yeah. Um, but not the bladder neck. The bladder neck is, if you contract that, that's actually more sympathetic. So you're going to hold on to things. All right. But that's not for this case. The detrusor just generally is going to contract in parasympathetic. All right. Uterus. So you can will contract the uterus, particularly in childbirth. That's parasympathetic. Uh, and then all the glands that we spoke about earlier. Also M3. So oh. M3 does a lot. Okay. 
And you can probably imagine if you throw in a drug that acts on M3, you're going to get a lot of side effects. Yeah. So, for instance, if you want to, um, if you, let's say you got glaucoma, all right, which is a high pressure in the front of your eye, and you want to use a, a muscarinic drug, you don't want to probably give it orally. Right, because you're going to get all those side effects that we, well, all the effects that we just spoke about. Yep. It's going to affect the heart. It's going to affect the uterus if you're a female. It's going to affect your bladder, your GIT, your bronchioles. And if you just want to target your eye, you don't want to do all that stuff, right? Exactly. Makes sense. Yep. All right. All right let's move on because that was a recap. That was a that was a nice big recap. But at least you know about the muscarinic receptors. Okay, so now we go to the drugs. Alright. And so there's essentially two ways to remember. There's the agonists, which is the activators, and the antagonist. Yep. Okay, so let's start with the agonist. Let's first, can I just say that when we look at the drugs, that while we do have agonists and antagonists, there's very few antagonists. So predominantly we're going to be focusing on agonists today. Right. Um, and we'll finish off with some antagonists. And when we look at agonists, you can break it up into two major classes. Okay. So you got direct acting mm-hmm. agonists. Now, what would that mean to you if I said direct acting? Um, acting directly on the receptor? Yeah. So basically, the direct acting agonists mimic acetylcholine. Okay. So they pretend to be acetylcholine and right. activate the same receptors as acetylcholine. Okay. Um, and then the indirect acting, what do you think? Don't act on the receptor. No, that's right. So what they do is they increase the availability of existing acetylcholine. Right. At so the, at the receptor, they don't necessarily jump on the receptor, but they somehow make more acetylcholine just available. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. At so, the at the synapse. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's start with direct. Okay. Because that we, seems pretty straightforward. So direct acting. Now, so these bind directly to the receptor, which we spoke about. Let's say in the context of M1, M2, M3. Okay. Yeah. Um, can you give me some examples? Well, I think of drugs? we have to start with acetylcholine. Okay. Right. So acetylcholine is going to be the main uh, direct acting chemical. Mm-hmm. However, acetylcholine isn't very useful therapeutically. And that's what we're talking about today. Acetylcholine actually doesn't last very long within the system because oh, okay. the enzymes that sit at the synapse gobble it up and recycle it pretty quickly. So acetylcholine, um, yeah, really isn't used. So what they did was they started to create drugs that looked and sounded and tasted like acetylcholine. Tasted? Well, maybe. That's what they used to do back in the day. A lot of these drugs were created in the early 1900s and one of the ways that they used to determine what type of drug they were was to taste it oh right yeah so probably the first one we should talk about which is very similar to acetylcholine is methanocholine right it's basically acetylcholine but it lasts a lot longer and you only need like one two hundredth the amount of acetylcholine okay to do the same effect all right um so that's methanocholine Mm mm-hmm there's carbacol and bethanacol as well. Okay. Um, these are probably the three top direct acting, what we term choline esters, which mimic acetylcholine. Methanacholine, carbacol, and bethanacol. So bethanacol is probably one just to note because it is used pharmacologically, um, predominantly in some cases of 
um, urinary retention and um, where you have kind of a uh, a slow bowel after surgery. Yeah, bethanicol seems to be more M3 specific. Okay. What you'll find with a lot of these uh, cholinergic drugs is that unlike the sympathetic, there's a lot of overlap when it comes to what receptors these drugs hit. So specificity is not as great as that of the adrenergics. And so what you'll find is methanicol, carbacol, bethanicol don't just hit multiple muscarinic receptors. Some of them actually also hit nicotinic receptors at the preganglionic neuron. Okay. Right? So that means it can slightly activate a little sympathetic activity. Um, when we look at bethanicol, like I said, it's more so M3 specific while the others aren't necessarily. And carbacol and bethanicol seem to be quite resistant to acetylcholine esterase. These are the enzymes that oh, gobble up and recycle acetylcholine at the synapse. Okay, all right. So, And because of its effect at M3, bethanicol, that's where it has that effect for you know non-obstructive urinary retention, for example. And that would just mean like in a case, not so much obstructive would be like um, prostate enlargement. Mm. Okay, so it's probably less useful in that case. Yeah. Because the rate limiter is the prostate, not the diameter of the musculature in the tube. So there's other drugs. I think we spoke about the alpha, uh, the alpha drugs within adrenergic, which is probably more useful for the obstructive urinary retention. Yeah. Uh, And also, as I said, you got sometimes you can develop a condition called post-operative ileus, which is um, your peristalsis in your bowel is decreased, so you want to encourage peristalsis, and that's where botanical may be used. Okay. Um, probably just put one example of an alkaloid in the direct acting. Can I just quickly finish okay. off with one more important point? Yep. When you look at carbacol and bethanicol, um, what you'll find is that the carbacol and bethanicol together, they in- increase muscular tone, increase peristaltic activity, increase GIT secretions and that urinary effect as well. But it has very little cardiovascular effect. So... Because you always think about, oh, it's going to affect all the different structures, but really has not much of cardio. So that must be because it's more specific to M3, I guess. I think so. Yeah. All right. Sorry. So the the alkaloids are another type of direct acting you said. Um, What was one that you wanted to talk about? Well, the main one I've got listed is polycarpine. Yeah. And that can be used in glaucoma. Mm. So this is where you have high pressure in the front of your eye. And this is one of the biggest causes of blindness in the world. And so, the main treatment options for... Is that called glaucoma? That's glaucoma. So, glaucoma is just a high pressure. It can be an open or a closed angle glaucoma. It's just a high pressure in the front of the eye, Mm -hmm. which then can cause damage to the back of the eye. And so, the treatments that can be used for glaucoma can range from prostaglandin analogues beta blockers, which we saw when we did adrenergic, and also um, alpha-2 uh, agonists, mm. because we know alpha-2 is that inhibiting one in the adrenergic, but but also the cholinergic agonists. So polycarpine can be used, I, I'm assuming, in a drop form, topical form, so you're not ingesting it yeah. or getting an IV. You're just getting it dropped onto your eyeball. So it's a mitotic agent. Yeah, so... What does that mean? Mitotic. My, meiotic. Okay. Meiotic agent, I should which say. Which means it induces meiosis. Yep. Which means 
pupil uh, constriction. Pupil constriction. Yeah. Which my understanding of how that helps is just trying to think now i think the way that the muscles work in the eye if you um constrict them no if you dilate them and pull all those strings of the pupil yeah. as you pull all the strings in the muscles bunch up does that make sense yeah and that makes it harder for the fluid in the front of your eye to kind of move through yeah um so the flow is poor but if you constrict them i think it it stretches those muscles out. Smoother surface for the movement. And it allows greater flow through the ducts of the eye. Okay. Okay. So that's that's pilocarpine, you said. Polycarpine. Polycarpine. Yep. So polycarpine, uh, like you said, predominantly used for ophthalmic. Well, that's um, the one I know. I mean, there's probably other Well, it does uses. have a number of other effects. I mean, they historically, when they injected it hypodermically, at certain okay. concentrations, it made the individual produce between two to three liters of sweat oh wow so that's how good it is at promoting sweating so uh, how what in the, that area or through the whole question. body i don't know i don't know oh, but wow. two to three liters of sweat isn't that insane um it also i read it contracts the musculature of the spleen and could be responsible for leukocytosis um which seems to be observed when pilocarpine is given systemically right is it given systemically pharmacologically as far as i'm aware from a clinical standpoint i'm i i don't know um, there might be a situation in which it is given outside of ophthalmic scenarios but I, i'm not aware well i think that there's a, an example here it's using Schrogan's syndrome oh yeah when you can't salivate appropriately yeah yeah that's particularly a condition where people have problems with dry eyes um, dry throat, cough a lot. Yeah, yeah. So it can that's be, definitely one of the scenarios. So again, I'm not sure how they give that, whether it's again topical or orally. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know, but at least that's what this particular drug does. Okay, so, so these are the direct active. Okay, so let, I think we've covered the main ones. There's probably many more that can be used, but these are the ones that I found. Well, um, all the others are variations on a theme. They're like yep. these are the ones, you know, you look at the uh, the choline esters, the ones that sort of mimic acetylcholine. It's not really acetylcholine, but it's methanocholine, carbocol, bethanocol, and then the alkaloids, which are still quite similar. And so the they main mean, one is polycarpine. So muscarine come from this one? Muscarine is also an alkaloid. And so that's where the muscarinic receptors were first known from muscarine? It came from a derivative of mushrooms. Mushrooms, yeah. okay. So that mushroom, presumably they ingest in them, that mushroom caused a direct act in parasympathetic effect. Flushing, sweating, so okay. forth. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so let's look at the indirect acting. Okay. Now, when we said indirect, we said it increased the availability of already existing acetylcholine at the receptor, okay. which means that we need to talk about very briefly the fact that when acetylcholine is released from the presynaptic neuron, Yep. And but I think also in this context, sorry to be annoying, but a lot of the context here is more at the skeletal muscle as well. Can be. Yeah, because a lot of the clinical objectives here is in a condition, well, just at the skeletal muscle level, but keep going. So can be at the skeletal muscle, but also within the parasympathetic nervous system. Yep. But what we need to be aware of was, is regardless, when acetylcholine is released by the neuron, 
it exists at the synapse okay. for a fraction of time. Before- All right, so it runs across from the, the neuron to the other neuron or the other effector and just jumps onto the receptor, like jumping on a seat mm-hmm. to, to then call it an activation to that effector or to the next neuron. It's okay. a very fast game of musical chairs where if you don't oh, okay. have a chair, you quickly get pulled out of the game. Okay. And so does this enzyme that's pulling you out of the game, does it pull you off the receptor as well? Or just cut you in half when you're in the synapse? So once you've bound to the receptor, it does change the neurotransmitter and binding to the receptor is reversible and then it does get recycled by the enzyme. Okay, so just to clarify, and you, I'm not sure if you know it, um, I don't know the answer to this. So, as ACH runs across the synapse... So, that's acetylcholine. Acetylcholine. And it jumps on the receptor. Yep. Whilst it's on the receptor, which is causing a response, does the enzyme pull it off? I would say... Or just wait for it to come up and then it cuts it in half? Definitively, I don't know, but I would say <laughs> it does enzymatically degrade it while it's on the receptor. Really? I would say so. What a mean enzyme. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is that what it does is it basically chops it up. And what is this enzyme again? This is called acetylcholine, yeah. unsurprisingly. Yeah. Esterase. Esterase. So the ase tells you it's an enzyme, enzyme and it chops it up. Okay. And it chops it up into various components. Some are recycled. Some go elsewhere in the body. We don't really need to I think to it's just choline and acetate. That's right. And what it does is it basically reduces the amount of acetylcholine available at, at the, the synapse. Re- okay. Therefore, if we want to increase the availability of acetylcholine at the synapse, we need acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, also termed anticholinesterases. Brilliant. So all you're doing with these drugs is um, either... Um, oh, I remember my pharmacology teacher said this... Um, if you think of the enzyme like a dog, yeah, okay, you can either um, just distract the dog for a bit, so it, you you pull the dog away and then you you know play ball with it, yeah, or you can poison it and kill it. Gotcha. And so there's two ways. Yeah. You can either reversibly. Which one do you do? Uh, you can either reversibly affect the dog. Yeah. And so it'll eventually come back and um, do its job. Yeah. Of rounding up the. ACH like or, or the sheep uh, I think you use sheep or you can kill the dog with a poison bit of meat and that's yeah. irre- irreversibly so now so it's you're gone for that, good so you, is this analogy basically stating that of the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors yeah. you can have some that are reversible and some that are irreversible correct okay so do you want to start talking about the reversible ones okay so these so are the ones distracting that, the dog this is just distracting the dog and then again just to if you just li- starting to listen here um which i'm not sure why you'd be doing that because it's not a radio <laughs> anyway um if you're using a reversible and you're using the dog analogy is referring to the enzyme yeah i think everyone got that <laughs> okay so we're just distracting the dog with these drugs all right so do you want to list these drugs yeah, so I think some of the uh, physostigmine is probably the most common or most notable. Or neostigmine. Yeah, or neostigmine um, and peridostigmine as well. Okay. So, like but there's also bit... rivastigmine too, adenepazil. Like I said before when I, I stated that these can be also commonly used on skeletal muscles. Yeah. There is a condition where they're commonly used, which is called myasthenia gravis. And so this is probably an autoimmune disease where the autoimmune action is to kill off 
ACH receptors. Uh, whereabouts? On the skeletal muscle. Oh, okay. And so you're losing the amount of skeletal muscle or receptors on the skeletal muscle. And as you said earlier, you need the receptors for ACH to bind, which opens up sodium, which then tells calcium to be released, which then causes muscle So does that mean contract. people with myasthenia gravis, what, one of the main symptoms is weakness, muscle weakness? Yeah. Um, specifically like ongoing contractions. So I remember when I did a PBL in medicine, the example was the um, what was happening to a lady in this case when she was hanging out the washing. Yeah. So at the start she could do it, but as she was pulling clothes and hanging up on the washing line, and putting it above her head, she started to get weaker and weaker and weaker until mm. she couldn't contract anymore. Wow. And she had to go and sit inside. Wow. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So Absolutely. You just don't have as, enough receptors to be. Um, functional to cause you to have adequate contraction. Okay. So what this is going to do is just to overload the synapse with heaps of ACH. So that whatever receptors are left... It's just heaps of them. Yeah, yeah it, it will actually continue to stimulate those yeah. because you've got different... Yeah, okay. So you don't actually need all the receptors available to tell a muscle to contract. You need a subset of them to be available but continually stimulated. Mm. Now, this is probably only going to work for a period of time and I don't know. I mean, presumably the autoimmune condition continues and then you're going to get worse and worse. Yeah, I think it results in respiratory failure. Maybe there is uh, immune modulators now that can stop that. I'm not sure. But okay. neostigmine, I just remember neostigmine is a very important drug in this space. Okay. Uh, are there any other scenarios that we can use these reversible indirect, or let's just say these reversible acetylcholinesterase inhibitors? Uh, the other one, uh, the other one that I'm uh, aware of that I've learned is Dunpazil. Is what? Dunpazil. Dunpazil. Yeah. Yeah. I just you th- poor thing. You know how I remember this when I learned this drug. Yeah. Dun, done puzzle. Like I finished the puzzle, and so you, to do puzzles you need a lot of cognitive function. Gotcha. And so this drug is good for Alzheimer's. Yeah. So is rivastigmine. That's yeah. that's a big one for dementia. So as that's well. the only reason why I remembered it like that. All right. So. Well, let's quickly talk about that. So rivastigmine and denepazil is used in cases of dementia, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, and so the role of acetylcholine with Alzheimer's is the fact that when you look at the central nervous system, acetylcholine is required to solidify synapses and to promote memory. Uh, recall cognitive capacity and so forth when you have dementia you actually or alzheimer's you lose neurons neurons die they disappear and you actually lose brain mass and in losing brain mass you lose the capacity to release acetylcholine Mm. and therefore you get a reduction in acetylcholine now the reduction can result in the memory issues and and reduction in cognitive capacity Therefore, what we need to do is increase the amount of acetylcholine available mm-hmm. to help promote all those things. Yep. Therefore, we use acetylcholinesterase inhibitors like rivastigmine and donepazil. Okay, brilliant. Um, Thank you. But again, I think that will slowly diminish over time. And then as the dementia worsens, then the, the function or the, the efficacy of this drug is diminished. Yep. Now, there's like neostigmine, for example, has been used to reverse uh, muscle paralysis after surgery. Oh, okay. And has also been used to promote bowel movement in people with spinal cord injury. Oh, yeah. Okay, so yeah. that would be non-obstructive. Yes. Okay, brilliant. Um, so how about we look at the irreversible? So this is where you kill the dog. Right. So in the analogy. <laughs> in the analogy. Okay, <laughs> not, good. Not these drugs used to kill dogs. No, please. 
This is not something that we support. But to continue Matt's analogy, the irreversible acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, once you pop them in... So the dog analogy here is to the enzyme. (laughs) Okay. Sorry, let me apologize to everyone for Matt. Um, I may need to find some irreversible acetylcholinesterase inhibitors to give him. They're actually horrible. They are longer lasting. They're not really used clinically. They are, or at least in the first instance, were produced as insecticides. Because mm, yeah. I want you to think about this: when you give organophosphates, when you give an organism an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, yeah. that's long lasting, you get a prolonged parasympathetic effect. Now, this leads to something called dumbbells. Right. I think we may have spoken about dumbbells in the previous. The gym. Oh, sorry. So the, no, not the gym dumbbells. Uh, dumbbells is D-U-M-B-B-E-L-S. And what that stands for is the D stands for diarrhea. Yep. The U for urination. The M for meiosis. The B... Constriction. Yep. The B for bradycardia. Slow heart. The B for bronchoconstriction. It's evident. The E for emesis. Um, is that vomiting? Correct. Okay. L for lacrimation. Crying. And S for salivation. So, if you were to give somebody an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor or anticholinesterase, that's irreversible, meaning long-term, these things kick into action and these things will kill you mm. if extended over time. Okay. They are used predominantly as insecticides or at least were in their first iteration of production. I think they still are. They still are, but then when war occurs, they go, okay, military warfare is kicking in. They started to use these things as like nerve gases. Oh, really? Yeah, like sarin. Sarin is probably one of the most notable nerve gases and is deadly, absolutely deadly. World War II was its primary production. I think sarin was the the one that was used in the Tokyo um, metro. May have been. And I think, was this in Iraq as well, Saddam? Did he Potentially. Use I don't know I what they used, this, but they were, they were nerve gases. Okay. So, I think we've gone through, what we've gone through is we've reintroduced the parasympathetic nervous system, spoke about its craniosacral nerves coming out and the organs it affects. We spoke about the receptors again. We recapped what the receptors were, where they acted. We spoke about the agonists for acetylcholine so we spoke about direct acting and indirect acting and we spoke about reversible and irreversible indirect acting but what we need to finish on are the antagonists i just read very quickly on uh, a particular page um organophosphate poisoning which i'm not sure how common is it it is now um farmers could get it if they've sprayed without protection yeah. And so a common presentation is that they would present with increased secretions. Yep. Fasciculations of their muscles. Okay. So this is just involuntary uh, muscle contraction. Um, pinpoint pupils. Yep. Distinct smell. I'm not sure if that's from the gas or from their own body secretions. Yep. Or, and um, chest crackles and bronchi, which is... Um, indicative of wheezing okay yeah wow the antagonists that would all make sense for me and then they can go into a coma yep so that would make sense um from everything we spoke about sorry so now we go to the antagonist which is the blockers 
Yes. So if you're going to block acetylcholine, what you'll end up what you'll end up doing is basically mimicking the sympathetic nervous system. Okay. Right. So these are also known as sympathomimetics. They mime the sympathetic nervous system. Right. And there's only one really. I mean, it's called atropine. Oh, that's a, that's a couple. Well, all based upon belladonna, which means beautiful woman in Italian, and it so comes. So why from, would you get? Why would you be a beautiful woman? If you took this. Because it came from a plant termed belladonna. Because women back in medieval Italy used to take this plant. Right. And they used to ingest it. Yeah. And I'm waiting for how this makes you beautiful. Because it makes your pupils significantly dilate. Oh, right. And that, that was makes known as a term of beauty with dilated pupils. However, a lot of these women didn't know where they were going. So they would bump into a bunch of stuff. Would it do anything else? I just can't think of the top of my head. Besides... Causing you to get big probably pupils. Sweat and salivate. No, that would probably be drooling everywhere. Oh, so, of course. Sorry. Um, uh, increased heart rate was a big one. Still thinking how that makes you beautiful. Would it give you... It's just the, pu- would it give just you the fl- pupil effect. Just, not flushing or anything? No. Potentially flushing, but that's more of a parasympathetic. Or maybe you're white. Could be the pale. Would, yeah, would that make... Could you, be the pale skin and the... Was and that the, beautiful in those days? Yeah, maybe. Who wow. knows? Interesting stuff. Yes. So atropine is a good one. Yep. So that might be used in an example where you have um, very severe bradycardia. Yeah. So you've got sinus bradycardia and you want to speed up the heart, you give them atropine. Yeah. I'm not sure exact, exactly clinically. If, again. It's also used in eye exams okay, right, so to that, dilate the pupil. Okay. That would be for other reasons than um, glaucoma, I presume. Yeah. Okay. Now, some other drug... Have you got anything else you want to talk about with atropine? No. Okay. Um, some other drugs... These are the ones that I think is more clinically relevant. Yeah. Is apotropium and teotropium. So, these okay. are used in COPD. And so, these... What's COPD? Uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So, this would be emphysema and chronic bronchitis. Yeah. I'm not sure they really use much at all in um, asthma. Yeah. Okay. Um, but these drugs, because you're blocking the parasympathetic... We already knew that parasympathetic causes bronchoconstriction. So if you block that, you would get um, bronchodilation and you definitely get less secretions. Okay. You, which you don't want when you've already got problems with your lungs. That makes sense. Um, the other one, which is, you pronounce it because I probably won't do a good job of it. High sky, I mean. Okay. So this one is, at least in Australia, the brand name is called Buscapan. Oh, yeah. Which I used. Um, when I got um, severe um, deli belly. What's that? India. Um, You're pooping yourself, Matty. Yeah. Again. Severe diarrhea. Um, so gastro, um, gastroenteritis. Yeah. Um, so I, I got it from a, a virus in mm. India and I ended up in hospital. How in, do you think you got that? Um, I don't know. Quite a number of people got it on the trip I was on. You're doing a lot of cadaveric dissections over there, weren't no, you? No, that, that was that trip. I was fine. Uh huh. This that was the first trip to India that I had this problem. Um, but a significant amount of people that were travelling with me also had this, so it was viral. So what did the buscapan or high side? It's an do? antispasmodic. So one side effect of having severe diarrhea is cramping pain. Very yeah. Painful. Yeah. Uh, it's not just. Um, emesis of the lower end yeah it's it's the cramping yeah and so um that this helped me significantly as soon as i started taking 
High Sky, I mean. Or Buscapan. Yeah. Um, it, the cramping pain went away. Wow. Yeah. So that was a good drug that I at least can have experience on. Well, that's great. It's good to see you still don't have deli belly. It makes me happy. We're done, Matty. So is, we've covered everything? Yep. How long did that take us? Uh, longer than it should have, but it took us just under, well, we're hitting 50 minutes. Well, that's pretty good. That's good for us. Do we do a final wrap-up or are you happy no, with that? No, I've done a final wrap-up excluding the antagonist, but what we should do is uh, housekeeping. This is where everyone turns off now because they don't care. Because you talked for five minutes. Okay, let me just very quickly say that Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast is proudly brought to you by our spare time. And <laughs> it's really hard for us to... It's a good sponsor that. Yes. So we need to... Hopefully, you found that the quality of this episode is a bit better. I know Matt's voice is very dull and low and just hushed. My, just my attitude's dull. Yeah. And he gets overpowered by uh, the Todorovich. So in order for us to continue to deliver high quality, which we think, med ed (laughs) podcasts, videos, because we have a YouTube channel, Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike's Medical YouTube, and I've got an Instagram page now. Please go and follow at Dr. Mike Todorovich. That's at D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C. I need a better surname. You'll find med ed videos under five minutes there for you. You can ask me questions. I can do a video for you. More than happy to do that. Otherwise, you can support us on Patreon. You can go to Patreon forward slash medical podcast and you can donate a dollar a month, five dollars a month or more. If you donate a certain value over time, we will give you some of our merchandise. Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike's medical education key rings, hats. We've got a hat that says make anatomy great again. That's Mugs. Cool. Mugs. Has this picture of Michael's face. Yes, I'm very beautiful. So if you want to drink out of that, please <laughs> feel free. Look, apart from that, thank you for listening. We love you all. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you don't think we're and worth... And suggestions. Well, and if you don't think we're worth a five-star rating on iTunes, just don't give us a rating at all. Uh, and suggestions. Email us at gu... No, it's gubiosciences at gmail.com. That's g-u-b-i-o-s-c-i-e-n-s-s. <laughs> However you spell science. <laughs> Sciences at gmail.com. Michael so needs some um, neostigmide. Yes, I oh, do. Oh, no, done Brazil. Yeah, done puzzle. <laughs> done puzzle. All right. Thanks, everyone. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.